Hello and welcome to Hong Kong Heritage. I always enjoy this time of year in the run-up to the Lunar New Year holiday with the pink blossom, kumquat trees and the Chinese New Year banners with their lovely calligraphy. Now, last week I did advertise that I'd be talking with some members of the Sikh temple about their lives and especially a group of women who really provide the backbone to the temple in organising events and helping others. But with your permission, I'm going to postpone that for a little while as this kind and always welcoming community will be permitting me to head back to get some sound from the kitchen which serves visitors and those in need with free meals and also from the prayer service in the temple so i'll come back to you a little later with that as well this week molly odell has been visiting hong kong with her family molly odell was born molly rubin in 1931 in baghdad part of an iraqi jewish family She'd move on to Kobe for her formative years and then to Shanghai, where she spent the Second World War, before coming to Hong Kong, where she would meet and marry David O'Dell, the son of Hong Kong's first impresario, Harry O'Dell, who founded the Empire Theatre in North Point in 1952. It would later become the State Theatre and is still there today, thanks to the efforts of local heritage enthusiast Heidi Kickerboy, who's pushed for the theatre to have Grade 1 heritage status. Molly O'Dell would leave Hong Kong in 1951, returning in 1973. In this first part of a two-part programme, we talk about her early years. Yes, Kobe's my first memory. It was a wonderful life. We had a good life there. I was one of six children. The Japanese really were very good to us. I remember we had a terrible typhoon. I think it was in 1937. And they came to our home and led us around the other side of the mountain where it was safer. And I have very good memories of Japan. And how come you were there? What was your father's business? My father was an import-export and he also worked with silks exported a lot of silk fabrics and things like that. So import-export was mostly textiles or a whole variety? I would say toys and textiles. I used to love going to his office and playing with the samples and then he used to import dates and I hated the smell and I've never <laughs> liked dates since. <laughs> well, I suppose en masse. Um, right. But t- tell me about Iraq. So is your background Baghdadi Jewish? Or? Yes, Baghdadi Jewish. We go back a long, long way. I looked up, just looked up my DNA, you know where you... Uh, yeah, yeah. And that's where I'm from, <laughs> way back. <laughs> and so what was your name before you got married? Uh, Reuben. So you go to Kobe with your father's import-export business, so tell me your parents' names. My father's name was Salim and my mother Regina, yeah. I went to a British school in Kobe called the Windsor House School. The headmistress was Mrs. Blacksill. It was a tiny school, about a hundred students, and just a walk from our home. It was nice, it, you know, just a small community. Being a child, I, I guess I wasn't that involved, but my brothers and sisters had many friends. And oh, were you the youngest then? Second youngest, yeah. My sister was born in Japan.
school. What sort of subjects do you remember as a child, what you enjoyed? Well, the way we went to school, I, I'm not sure if it's different today, but it was always we did the same subject every day. History, geography, French, English, maths, later on algebra, things like that. And what sort of history were you taught? Mostly British. Every year it was the English history. The kings and queens, I still don't have it straight. <laughs> what does it matter? <laughs> As you say, you arrived from Baghdad. You're now being brought up in a very much a, a British education system. Yes. What would you have described yourself as, though? I mean, was there a, a synagogue that you went to in Kobe? No, we, it didn't exist. We were a very small community uh, for the holidays, mostly... They would hold services in my home. Really, Kobe consisted of very few Jewish families, but quite a few bachelors. And when I say quite a few, I say six or seven or eight. It was a tiny community, and they could be Syrian, Lebanese, or Iraqi. And now, when you look back, your Iraqi heritage, is that a big part of you, or is that something that's so distant in comparison to the rest of your life? I would say distant, yeah. But a point of curiosity, maybe. Yes, yeah, yeah, I would say distant, because I don't speak Arabic, because I was separated from my parents from the time I was 10. My mother joined me when I was 16. I was married at 18, so, yes, so, you know. Life moved quite swiftly, so you're you're educated in Kobe. You then, is that, you move on to Shanghai with your father's business? I moved on to Shanghai because his brother was there in the same business. to Shanghai at the end of August, September. The war started three months later. The Japanese closed the school for a while, and then we went back to school for a bit, and then they closed it again. And a lot of the schools they used as camps, holding camps. And then I went to the Jewish school, and then the Japanese closed that down. And then we went to a private home. And we really, at that point, we had very few books, and all our exams were done orally. And uh, we had to borrow very dog-eared textbooks. We just didn't have the facilities. We didn't have the pencils or the paper. And then I got TB, and I had to leave school. So I was isolated at home for about a year, a little over a year. Of course, tuberculosis would have been a much more common disease to have in those days. Uh, I mean, how does it get treated these days? It's quite easy to treat, isn't it? I I imagine so, but we did find an Austrian doctor there that was treating me. And they caught it very, very early. And I was cured of it, though my lungs are very scarred and I have a lot of lung problems now. I came out clean in the end. And what was the treatment? I don't know. He was giving me injections and I had to sit in the sun in the morning till 9 o'clock because something about infrared rays and violet blue rays and I think I was getting the violet blue rays, which were good for me. It was primitive, but here I am to tell about it. (laughs) 
good for you. So you're in Shanghai. Now, the fact that you'd had your formative years in Kobe, then you're in Shanghai where it's occupied by the Japanese. Yeah. Do you remember how you felt about that at the time? You know, I was very apathetic about life and death. If I went to sleep at night and I didn't wake up in the morning, it would be okay. Life was cheap. I was not worried at all. And when I'd read a story about Americans would go behind the lines to save three lives, I'd wonder why. It just didn't register for me. Life was cheap. And you were a teenager at this point? I was, yes, I was 13, 14, yeah. And where did you live in Shanghai? In a place called West End Gardens, which was very close to the Jessfield Park. It was at the end of Yuyen Road. It was a housing development where the houses were joined, row houses. Very small, very modest, tiny little pocket handkerchief garden. And we were, at one point, my aunt was looking after us, and we were nine children in this one house. Three stories, ground floor, bedrooms, and then the attic. It was all right. You know, we lived on cabbage and rice and once in a while a little meat or a little chicken. But then she was interned by the Japanese because she was British. She went to some island they took them to first, Yangchao, I think. And then they brought them back to Chape. Chape used to be a university, so they had dormitories there. We had to send the beds ahead of time and one trunk each. So they had uh, five beds sort of catty corner, one next to the other with a small little space in the middle for a table. And she worked in the scullery. So she would sometimes take dead cabbage leaves or something and make a little something for her own family. And I stayed in the camp with them after the war for about a month. It was at that point that we had a lot of freedom. You could go in and out. And so your aunt is taken in as a as a British citizen or a subject, yeah. What what are you then, or is it because you're still a child? Because I was Iraqi and I was not her child, even though we had to wear armbands, the Japanese would not let me go in with her. So were these Star of David armbands? Or? No, no, just a red arm. We had The British had a B, right. the Americans had an A, we had an X. I see, so it's based on nationality, not on religious affiliation oh, no, or anything? No, no. Not no, so, not like, like Nazi Berlin or whatever? No, the Japanese didn't have anything. Of, you know, they were not anti-religion in that sense, as far as I recall. They did house all the refugees in Shanghai. There were about 10,000. They weren't all Jewish. Some were political, some were just refugees. But they were allowed to come out of the, every day, and I used to have a lot of classmates that came from, from Hong Kou in Shanghai and had to be back by 6 in the evening. So this is you during the war. Your parents are in India at this yes, point. Yes. Why did they go to India? My father, went. he had an office over there, and he went there to sort things out. I'm not sure if he was planning to establish a home. We still had our home in Japan, and we lost everything over there. The carpets are silver, you know. I guess they were bombed or something. We never got any of that back. And they and they were there till 46. In some ways it's a long time ago, but in some ways it's... I mean, that's a, that's a very mixed and quite hard upbringing for you. Um, did it sort of... And also with the diet and all of these and, and, and sense of possessions, has that affected you in later years? Yes. I always shop for a lot of food and I come home and I put it in the cupboard and I say, if there's a war tomorrow, we'll eat. <laughs> yeah. Very much so. 
And for the longest time, I always carried food in my bag. I'd have a bag of nuts. It could stay there for a year and a half and not be touched. But I had to, I had to know I had food. <laughs> so were there times, in your, you know, as a child, were you hungry? Oh, a lot. A lot. <laughs> Double up in pain, hungry. Yeah. I know that after the war, I was very sallow. And when I was applying for a visa to go to the United States, and the lady was asking me, what color are you? And I looked and I said, gray. I, di- I didn't realize she meant, are you white or... <laughs> now, while you're in Shanghai, your future in-laws, Harry and Sophie O'Dell, are in Japanese occupation in Hong Kong. And, well, he was. She stayed out on the Vichy France passport because her, they had French passports. And she, she was an amazing woman, and I adored her, and she adored me. So this is Sophie O'Dell. Sophie O'Dell. She saved at least 200 lives. She kept a record of all the men she, she supported. And the way she supported them was her mother owned the jewelry shops and at Frere's, and they used to sell the stones. So after the war, they had all these empty settings, but no stones in them. And that's how she supported them. And she said to me, she kept a record, and she said she was paid everything back. And in fact, I have an, I had an inkwell of hers with a pen, and I gave it to my son with thanks from Lord Mertha. And Lord Mertha is? I don't know. I just know the name. Ah, okay. Well, we could look that up. Yeah. So somebody, obviously, that she that helped. She so, so where was Sophie O'Dell during the war? Sophie was in the Alborose in Pocfulum where a lot of the women whose husbands, quite a few of the women whose husbands were in camp, were staying with them in Alba Rose, including a doctor, Sophie Bard, who delivered my son, and Vera Sterica, I believe. Vera was married to one of the, the wheel boys, and when after he died, she married Sterica. I met them after the war. But so she's in Hong Kong during the war? Yes. But she's not in camp? Not in camp because of the French passport. Mm which was fortunate. So when you say that she helped these people, how? Well, she used to send them food parcels. She used to go outside the camps, waving and so on. And then she had, there was a a Japanese minister, Methodist minister, called, I have a book called The Little Man from Nanataki, but I forget what his name was. Is it John Watanabe? Watanabe, right, John Watanabe. And he used to wear, he was an officer, and he used to wear a cloak as the officers did and she used to buy drugs and send the drugs to the camp what happened was Harry O'Dell uh, was shot in the foot and the doctor Selwyn Lloyd I believe it was wanted to amputate and he sent word to ha- Sophie to say she was go- he was going to amputate and she said to him I promise you if you don't amputate I'll supply you with drugs and she did and she saved many men's lives. She was really an amazing woman, and she paid for it. After the war, she had a terrible nervous breakdown, and then she'd get better, and it recurred again. I think she had two nervous breakdowns. Just what, the level of anxiety? I suppose so. It was like, now she she let go. She didn't need that tenseness anymore, that nervous energy, I suppose. In terms of you, you're in Shanghai, so how do you meet your future husband? Well, we had come to Hong Kong. I was waiting to go to the U.S. to go to school, acting school. I insisted. (laughs) Otherwise, I wouldn't go, but I promised not to go on the stage. I was lying. And 
And so he came, uh, my brother was getting engaged to a Syrian lady, and we didn't know many Jews here. And there were two maiden ladies from Iraq who invited the whole Jewish community, and he came with his parents. And I came out of the bedroom wearing my little yellow evening dress with two bows at the neckline. <laughs> Very silly. And I saw him across the room wiping his hands, and I said, uh-uh, he's too good-looking, he's not for me. <laughs> That's so funny. So you're dressed in an evening gown, what colour? Yellow. <laughs> Yellow little puffs on it. Oh, very silly. <laughs> and you're 18 at this point? or uh, 17, right. yeah. I, I got engaged. Yeah, I was 17. It was June. He proposed. We went rowing in Repulse Bay, and we got to know each other. And about two weeks later, he proposed. Wow. My mother was very much against it because he was Ashkenazi and I was Sephardi. And But time went on, and my sister fought for me and convinced my mother to allow me to marry him. And yeah. So you're a Sephardic Jew? Yeah, and he's Ashkenazi. And, you know, it's so silly. Religion is really ridiculous. I mean, that's the bottom of all our troubles, isn't it? And uh, so finally, my mother was convinced that I could marry him, and we got married in May at the peninsula. Oh, nice. Tell yeah. me a bit more about that. I presume you'd upgraded from your yellow puffy dress. <laughs> yes. <laughs> This time I wore a silk, silver brocade dress made by a shop called Pacaret. I still have the dress. And what was it called, the, the shop? Pacaret. Okay, yeah. and what, what nationality was that then? The lady was French. Ah. Yeah. <laughs> and was it a short, was it, did you have Long a veil? Or? Yeah, I had a veil, a six-yard veil and, and a pearl tiara that I had seen Joan Fontaine wear in a movie magazine. <laughs> Do you know who Joan Fontaine is? Oh, good. <laughs> Hello. Oh, I'd begun to think you'd never call. Damon, you sound so serious. What is it? Oh, well, that is serious. Any special reason? Oh, but Damon, everyone needs help at one time or another. As a matter of fact, I, I was hoping you'd help me. I was hoping you'd Take me along with you on your trip to the stars. Oh, if I was taking too much for granted, forgive me, but I was thinking... Oh, no, no, it's it's nothing, but uh, I was thinking this is such an impersonal way to say goodbye. Couldn't we talk about it over a drink? Where are you? Oh, well, if, if you can make it up the elevator, I could make it to the bar. Oh, perhaps you're right. This way is so simple and uncomplicated. You just put down the receiver and the line is dead. But darling, if you change your mind, the door's open. You actually had the wedding at the peninsula? Or? Wedding at the peninsula, about 400 people. We knew about 100 and his family knew 300. Yes. <laughs> you know, they're old timers. And then we had a dinner in our home. And then I went on my honeymoon to Boulder Lodge that belonged to the Kaduris because I didn't have a passport at that point. Because in April of that year, I think Israel 
for independence and we lost our passports. Oh, tell me a little bit. So that's 1948. So how come? Because, I mean, you're, you're originally Iraqi. So we were Iraqi Jews, and so our passports were taken away from us. So we all had to scramble to get passports. One of them bought a Panamanian passport. Because we were Jewish and Israel then became an independent state, the uh, Iraqi passports were cancelled, would that be the word? By whom? I guess the Iraqi government. They were not recognized anymore. Oh, I see, the Jewish population. Yes. So we all had to get other passports. My sister, she'd been in India during the war, so she had a British passport. My brother bought a passport, I'm not sure from what country. My other brother went to Japan and he bought a Brazilian passport. I married a Britisher, it was easy. My other brother married an American, it was easy. My youngest sister was in the States already in boarding school and as a minor, he claimed her. So she got her passport and he claimed my mother, so she got her passport. So it was a, you know, it was such a chaotic time. Now tell me about your husband. Apart from being good-looking. Uh, yes, very good-looking. He was not a well person. Uh, I think it was the results of the war years. He had an infection around the heart. I forget there's a name for it. I can't remember. And we were already married and had one child, and I was pregnant. And we were to go to Pondicherry. Which is where? In South India, a French possession in South India. And we were going to stay at the peninsula while our things were packed and we were moving. My in-laws insisted we stay with them in Alba Rose. So we were in Alba Rose and he got sick again. He used to get sick every month and then every three weeks and it'd get closer and closer. And at that point, the Queen Mary Hospital had a portable... He had never been x-rayed while he was sick, always when he got better. So the Queen Mary Hospital had a portable x-ray and the doctor brought it over to look at him and he said he had to go to hospital immediately and he had pericarditis, that's what it was called. So he was there for a month and he was treated with penicillin and so he was there for a month, very weak, couldn't move, got better, came back to Alba Rose and had a relapse and was back in the hospital for another three months. Meanwhile, he, then he got treated with streptomycin, I think, and the doctor wanted to get oromycin. There wasn't any over here. My brother had to get permission from Washington to send it to us. And then meanwhile, they found some from smugglers, and they gave it to him. And that's what saved his life. And then as soon as he was well enough to travel, we left Hong Kong. My child was 25 days old, and I had another one of a year and a half. And all he could carry was a handkerchief. So it was really hard, a very difficult trip. It took three days. But I was young and strong, and we managed. And oblivious, probably. <laughs> we managed. <laughs> now, you went in Hong Kong. Your adventure goes elsewhere. Your life uh, with your husband and children goes elsewhere. But um, tell me a little bit about your father-in-law, Harry O'Dell. Harry was wonderful. He was always he was you know he filled a room harry walked in and and you knew he was there the only time i'd ever seen harry quiet the only time was when i took him to the doctor once and 
And we just sat quietly in the car, and I thought, oh, there's another person here. <laughs> so he's quite a... I mean, he was in, an Very impresario. Yeah. Yes, yeah. always, always out there and on stage, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Did that appeal to you? Yeah, yeah. You know, he was so warm and so loving and so never critical. Very appealing. Now, you're busy, obviously, as a young mum. But can you tell, did you have hobbies as well? And, and did you enjoy dancing in Hong Kong, that oh, side lovely. of life? Yes. Yeah, we, 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 you know, every Saturday night we'd go to the grips, all dressed up. Black you go to the? The grips. I think it was at the Hong Kong Hotel. Yeah. And uh, always dressed up, often black tie. It was that kind of a life, you know, after the war. And had you been taught to dance? Yes. My cousin taught me in Shanghai. We had a school dance and I, I remember I, all I knew was to hug very tight. <laughs> and I was a terrible dancer. And then my cousin gave me one lesson and I just fell into it. And the next time I danced with the same boy, he said, oh, what happened? <laughs> he was so surprised that I could follow him. <laughs> and I love dancing and I still do. <laughs> now at Grips at the Hong Kong Hotel was that often there would be a live band? Yes, always Filipino. And what kind of music? Pop of the time, you know, movie music and things like that. Sleepy time gal. There's just one place for me. <laughs> Can you give me a bit? <laughs> Which one? <laughs> Sleepy time gal. Da, 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 da. <laughs> and then, there's just one place for me near you. It's like heaven to be near you. Times when we're apart, I can't face my heart. Say you'll never stray more than just two lips away. <laughs> that was our song. Oh, lovely. <laughs> was, was David, was your husband able to dance despite, oh, yes. Yeah, despite oh, yes. the illness? Yes, yeah. yes, he was, and he was a wonderful dancer, and we fit well together, you know. <laughs> There's just one place for me near you It's like heaven to be near you Times when we're apart I can't face my heart Say you'll never stray two lips away If my hours could be spent near you I'd be more than content near you Make my life worthwhile by telling me that I'll spend the rest of my day lovely Molly O'Dell. Earlier, Molly O'Dell was referring to a book called Small Man of Nanataki by Liam Nolan, published in 1966. It's a moving account of a Japanese Lutheran minister, Kiyoshi 
Watanabe, also referred to as Uncle John, who was present in Hong Kong during the Japanese occupation and provided help to prisoners in the POW and internment camps at great personal risk. Next week, Molly O'Dell and I continue our chat as she heads with her young family in 1951, first to Hawaii and then on to Puerto Rico, where she spends the next 20 years before returning to Hong Kong. Thanks for listening and join me next week on Hong Kong Heritage. And now back to the Andrews Sisters. <laughs>